Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. You know, we all have something about us that we don't like, that we don't like. Let me try that again. We all have something about us that we don't like and try to hide from the world. But what if opening up helped your children realize they are not so alone? That's the bravery that our guest characterizes as he speaks with us about his problem he tried to keep from his children until he realized the strength behind it. And have you ever had a few drinks and thought you were okay to drive? Well, maybe after hearing from our traffic lawyer on how one man is facing six and a half years for thinking the same, you might want to reconsider. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. You know, when I was a kid, in uh, I lived in, grew up and live and still live in Toronto, in Ontario. And uh, when I was a kid, my mom wasn't so keen on me taking the subway late at night. Um, specifically, you know, if it was dark, you know, we shouldn't be on the bus. We shouldn't be on the subway. She would have preferred to pick us up, or my dad, or someone to pick us up. Me or my, me and my three brothers. But, you know, I was into doing stuff in those days that I wasn't really sure I wanted my mom to come and pick me up from anything uh, that I was into or where I might have been. So I did, in fact, take the subway and take the take the, the streetcar and the bus late at night, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. I was maybe 14, 15 years old at the time, 13. Uh, a little different. Times were a little different in those days. We were able to play outside late at night. You know, we weren't so worried about things happening in our neighborhood like we do today. But TTC was always kind of weird for me. You know, we'd get on, I'd get on the subway at 11, 1130 at night. Sometimes we're on a bus, you know, I'd get on the, the young street bus. If you've ever been in Toronto, young streets, the big street that goes up and down from the lake all the way up, I think to North Bay or something. Anyway, get on that bus or on that subway. And, and the scariest people in those days were just people that were high or drunk. I mean, they were just people, you know, I guess looking back, they're mostly uh, homeless people that were uh, high or drunk and, you know, they smelled bad. They looked, you know, tattered, you know, they were slurring their words, maybe half asleep that maybe you might run into some, you know, vomit on the, on the subway or someone spitting or peeing themselves or even worse. That was how severe it got back in the day. Now we're looking at people that are showing up, for example, most recently on just a couple of days ago, on March the 30th, um, there was a report of a man in the Toronto Transit System uh, station that was pacing back and forth with a razor blade. And uh, police, you know, found them pacing back and forth. He really wasn't out to harm anybody. They responded to this platform on the southbound train uh, at the St. George Station near Spadina. That's right downtown in Toronto. The subway service was temporarily suspended. Officers searched the area, but the man fled prior to them arriving. No one was hurt. It adds to a series of concerning incidents, certainly in this city and I think across the country, where people are being hurt, harmed, and in danger driving and being on public transit. Last Saturday, a young 16-year-old boy was heading home after spending time with his friends at the, at the mall, the Eaton Center. He was fatally stabbed. It was 8 or 9 o'clock at night. Just not a good place to be these days. We're just not a good place to be these days. It used to be it was something you could do. And, you know, it all comes down to the types of folks that we're seeing on the subway today 
versus perhaps some of the ones that I might have seen when I was a kid. I, I chatted earlier this week with Arlene Bynan. She was uh, a host here on 640 Toronto on the Global Network, uh, on the AM Network here in Toronto. Um, listen to my conversation. It's just a, a short clip uh, on uh, what her and I were talking about as it relates to the problems on the subway. Uh, Leo? Someone doesn't walk into a subway looking for somebody to kill unless there's something happening inside. So in some cases, many cases, there's, some, there's voices. There's, you know, auditory and, and auditory hallucinations coming from unstable mental health, unmedicated, and so on, not people not taking medication. I mean, this isn't a big, it's not a secret. It's not something that we're suddenly seeing. We've been seeing it for years. And now as a result of the pandemic, we're seeing it tenfold. So there's my conversation. It wasn't much of a conversation. I was on quite a rant, actually. Um, she caught me at a really good time. I was on a real rant that uh, for that interview where we were talking about uh, mental health and how folks that are, are struggling with their mental health are ending up on the subway system or in the subway stations. I mean, it's no secret. People you know, end up in bank, uh, bank uh, uh, instant bank lobbies, you know, anywhere where you can kind of get out of the cold. Uh, but if you're not well and your head's not on straight for that particular time in your life, you know, you do things, say things and act out in ways that I'm sure, you know, if you if you're able to play back sometime when you're feeling better, you'd feel really uh, badly about. But, you know, unstable mental health is a big problem of what we're dealing with, not just in the subway system, but crime in general in the in the downtown streets of our cities and have been forever and ever for a very long time. For a very long time, we've been dealing with trying to understand how to help people that are in crisis and at the same time keep ourselves safe. That's really the key here, right, is how do we help people that are in crisis, mental health crisis, perhaps they have an addiction issue as well, and that's acting out in, in some some way. There, you know, something called uh, amphetamine-induced psychoses. So if someone who's into methamphetamine may, in fact, end up in a psychotic state of mind, uh, which when you're in a psychotic state of mind, you hear things, do things, act out in ways that just aren't you at your best, for sure. And the stabbing death of the 16-year-old boy uh, last weekend um, is a real big deal. So the question is, what do you tell your kids? Because it's never a kid's fault that they get hurt, right? Experts emphasize talking to your kids about all kinds of fears, but in particular about TTC fears. There are a lot of children, a lot of young children, I would say anywhere from 9, 10, 11 and up, that take the subway, take the bus, take the streetcar in some form or another to get to and from school or perhaps to and from the babysitter after school. Uh, if they're fortunate enough that their parents are able to A, own a car, and B, have the luxury of a job that allows them to drop the, the kids off at school because, you know, that not all jobs allow you to show up at a time where you give yourself enough room to, to drop your kid off at school. Perhaps the drive is too far and it takes the parent away from uh, showing up to, to their job on time. So public transit becomes, you know, part of the process. As do private transit. I mean, there's private transit available. So you need to discuss things with your kid. And the and the one way in discussing things with your kid is simple steps like, you know, tra like suggesting that they travel in a group, ensuring that their the family knows where they're going and not traveling uh, alone or, you know, to be more safe, to, to be kind of, I, I'm a big believer in the buddy system in everything that, that children should do. Um, in terms of going to the washroom in a public place, in terms of uh, public transportation, if they're going in a group, they're much safer than if you're by yourself. 
So parents can't shield or, or surrogate reality, right? It just happens. Stuff happens. We have to make sure that our kids understand what's going on. So you have to open the conversation that brings, brings up their anxiety, brings up their fears, so that you can talk to them about it. As a matter of fact, the police have a webpage uh, here in Toronto uh, for the Toronto Transit System, um, and the, it talks about things you can do to be safe, right? So, there's, so, for example, a few tips. If you need help in the station, you go to a designated waiting area, use the intercom on the platform uh, or in any elevator to contact the station staff. Uh, part of the request stop program, TTC customers riding alone by bus between 9, 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. who are feeling vulnerable can request to be dropped off between regular stops. So not at a regular stop necessarily. The request should be made. But there's not a lot that they do. They say that you have to keep the volume down on your music so you can hear the noise around you, that you're aware of the places around you, and so on. Um, you got to, you know, if someone falls on the tracks or is caught between the doors moving away, you should, cut, you know, ask that the power be cut by going to the nearest emergency power cut cabinet. Uh, there's things that you can do. I'm not sure that a kid could do it. But there's, a, there's things that you should do. So what's important is to have a conversation with your children. Make sure that you understand if they're feeling anxious or worried. And if so, talk to them about that concern and see if you can give them some tips on how to uh, feel more comfortable, feel safer, and perhaps just be a little bit more uh, ahead of the game in terms of, um, you know, just, you know, being more attentive, just being more alert. I think all of us, frankly, not just kids, we need to be more alert around situations and places where we might be somewhat at risk. You know, we all have little secrets and things about us that perhaps we don't want the whole world to know. But sometimes you have to share those stories or share those situations, especially if it's in the best interest of your children. Certainly, that's something I've had to do over the years. You know, things about my past I'm not really proud of, but things that I, it was important that my children needed to know. And then, of course, when I became uh, aware of my you know, disabilities or my challenges, anxiety disorder, ADD, and uh, um, you know, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, I had to start sharing it with people. And clearly, in my work, it's something that um, is, you know, perhaps easier for me to do in the context of sh helping my patients understand where they're coming from. My guest this evening is Professor Paul McNicholas, and he's the Canada Research Chair in Computational Statistics at McMaster University. But that's not why he's on with me tonight. Why he's on with me tonight is because here's a guy at his best who figured out that he needed to be honest about his disorder in order to help his kid risking everything it takes to risk something like that, that he probably kept from people for a long, long time. But for the benefit of his child, he came out of the closet, so to speak, with a disorder that he's going to chat with us about. Um, Professor, can I call you Paul? Is that okay? Oh, yes, please. Thanks. Well, perfect. Okay, Paul, welcome to uh, the show. And uh, first of all, kudos to you. My hat goes off to you big time. Um and, and I, because I know, I know how hard it is, my friend, to share something, some vulnerabilities, um, especially with our kids, because they think you're Superman. I'm sure uh, your children do, and most children think their dads are superheroes. Um, my friend, when did you first notice that you had some kind of issue that you needed to share, and what exactly was it, and is it? Well, I, I guess. Realizing what I needed to share is a complicated question. Maybe I'll start when I realized there was something there. I, I'd have been quite young 
maybe eight, nine. And I find it difficult to get the meaning from people um, on a relatively regular basis. To give a concrete example, there's a phrase used quite a bit in Ireland for a person who tends to leave doors open. People say, were well, you born in a barn? And uh. the first few times I heard that, right up into my mid-teens maybe, I thought I was being asked if I was actually born in a barn. And uh, it took someone to say to me, no, that's a phrase that means you tend to leave doors open. And it various things like this is how I first became aware that I wasn't interacting with the world necessarily the way others do. What's it called? What is it that you've you've come to terms with? What is it, it's uh, according to the notes here? It's a communications disorder. Is that is that actually what it's described as? Well, the, the terminology used is social communication disorder, but I think I'm not sure the label is particularly helpful. I, for me, it's finding the meaning in words and language was very difficult, and I, I I've, I've gotten pretty good at it now, but that's. 42 years on, I still can't read body language. And I, I, it took me a long time to realize I was even missing something there because you don't know what you don't know, right? Right. When, when did you become aware of the fact that, you know, something, you know, was amiss? That, that it, it, you know, and this doesn't sound like it's so obvious either. So um, when did you realize that perhaps you weren't catching the signals that everyone else was? Oh, the body language part, Yona, was I was probably in my 30s before I fully realized that I was missing this whole dimension of communication yeah. with, with people. But you, but you carried on. I mean, you obviously had an adult life. I mean, you still obviously have a great adult life from what I can see. Um, so this communication disorder, for lack of a better word, in, in terms of today, how do, does, it, does it affect you on a day-by-day basis? And if so, um, like I have my own workarounds, right, around my ADD, my OCD, my anxiety disorder. I have my own workarounds, my, my plan around, you know, the stuff that I, you know, I have to be careful of in my own, I won't call them flaws, but certainly the things in my life that are a little different than perhaps others. Um, when did you figure out what was up? And I mean, we, we talk about your, your age of 30 when you kind of realize the body language thing, but when did you start adapting kind of a different approach to life, realizing that, you know, things weren't the same for you perhaps than for, they were for others and you needed what I, the term I use is a workaround. How did you come up with the workaround? Now, that's a great term and that's exactly what it, what it is and what it was. I think I probably started in my teens and through to my mid-twenties. You kind of build these mental maps of what people say and what they mean. A good example maybe is someone saying, I don't like cheese. Well, they probably mean they dislike cheese. But those two things don't actually mean the same thing. I mean, when I hear don't like, I leave open the room for indifference. And and that makes makes quite a... That makes quite a that makes quite a difference in some situations, depending on the topic. And little things like that, you build a map of the person probably actually meant that, and you try to follow the conversation along uh, based on that map. And over time, you, you ever, get good little practice, I suppose. Yeah. Do you ever sort of you know qualify it with people and say to them, you know, like uh, I'm not really catching your meaning. Could you kind of you know 
share that with me in a different way? I mean, are you able to, are you comfortable qualifying without telling everybody your whole life story? Are you able to qualify for people in some way that, Hey, I didn't really, I didn't, you know, man, I really didn't catch that. Like, can you come at that a different way? Do you, does that work for you? Or does that put you in a even more uncomfortable position? Now, right now I'm, I'm relatively comfortable, but initially it was much easier doing that. So I chose math at university because it was an easy, it's relatively an easy topic for someone who isn't great with communication necessarily. But as I went through the topic and I started teaching, I found the teaching paradigm uh, very convenient in the sense that questions are not only acceptable, but they're kind of expected. So interestingly, the things that I think make me um, maybe unusual in regular conversation, for example, asking too many questions, they're actually advantageous to some extent in a career as a professor and maybe especially working with grad students where it kind of helps for the student to question almost everything. So I'm very lucky I managed to, to carve out a career in a, a field where that kind of questioning is, is welcomed. When, when, you, when did you, when you actually got a, a kind of a, a label, if you will, or a description, uh, did it give you some relief or did it make you feel worse? I'd say neither. Um, the, the label was actually pretty much an accident. I, I got a, a position at work which would involve more communication. Um, I was directing a research institute and I, at that time I sought help um, from someone who was able to give me pointers on communication to meet with me, go through sessions. The big thing I was worried about, Yona, was that my own body language, I, I had a tendency, and I knew this from, from my own observations on yeah. friends, etc. Yeah. I tended not to move too much for not knowing, you know, how, how I should, how I should move. The, the right, the, and, yeah, um, the right body language yeah. at the right time. I get it. If you're just jumping in right now, I'm talking to uh, Professor Paul McNicholas. He is a gentleman dealing with his own uh, issues and challenges around communication and communication um, challenges, I, I suppose, disorder, He perhaps is what it's called. I don't know. At some point, needed to share with his kids and uh, just a guy at his best as far as I'm concerned. Paul, thank you for being back with us and sticking around. Um, yeah, listen, the, the obviously, we're you know, I'm talking to a guy who is a professor uh, Canada Research Chair in Computational Statistics at a big university, McMaster University, here in Ontario. Serious job, serious school. Um, I, obviously, this, I hate to use the term obviously again, it's clear then that your challenges uh, didn't keep you from landing a real good job with a serious title. Uh, tell me how that worked out and the impact it might have had on your social life as well. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there's a large element of luck with all of these things. Um, and I'm, I'm quite comfortable with the, the role that luck plays. I did have help along the way. Um, various people were there when I needed them, I guess. And I, I think one thing I'd say to anyone who's struggling with, with what they perceive as obstacles is there's, there's often a silver lining. I mean, I mentioned in the first yeah. half that some of the things that maybe are an obstacle for me in communication and daily life are actually in some ways advantages in my job. Yeah. 
It's interesting because I would say the same, you know, that my uh, my disorders and my challenges are probably, a, not probably, but clearly a help me with others to identify with my patients and so on. Um, in social life, though, you know, are, like, I'm very fussy about who I hang out with, the things we talk about, the places we go. Uh, do you find that you need to limit parts of your social life so it fits better for you and things kind of sync up with what's comfortable? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never had a large number of friends. I've generally speaking had a relatively small number of good friends, and that's worked out very well. I'm very fortunate to find in my in my wife, Olive, someone who I can very easily interact with. And I haven't in my life found many people like that, that I can easily interact with and that kind of understand me, if you know what I mean. Yeah, me too. I know exactly what you mean. I'm not the guy that you <laughs> want to invite to a party because I don't. I don't do. You know, I don't do the small talk about you know weather and you know what about those Blue Jays. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I like to talk about stuff. That, I like to talk about stuff that matters, or frankly, not talk about anything at all. So yeah, man, I, I absolutely get you. Um, at the point that you decided to open up to your kids, uh, tell me a little bit about that. How did that come about, and what was that first risk like? What did it feel like? It felt really good, to be honest. I mean, broadly speaking, going through life, we're all humans, we all have challenges. And I think you mentioned at the beginning about children perceiving their, their dad like as a Superman-type figure. I think children hearing from a parent about a difficulty, and it could be any difficulty that they have and how they overcame it, is going to be helpful and empowering to the children. And it was a really good experience for me and I think for them. How did your kids react? Give me an idea of like, did they say, oh, dad, you know, I, I have this, you know, this, this happens to me too. Did, did they in fact start to open up? And is that the reason you decided to share? Were you looking for them to share back? No, maybe a bit the opposite. I mean, ah. they'd be quite open about challenges they would have in their lives, various different types of challenges. I won't go into the details about that. And I think right. hearing in response a fairly significant challenge that I'd had uh, I think was helpful. And and now that you've kind of been open with your kids, do you, I, I mean, do you feel like perhaps there was, I won't say a secret you were holding on to, but do you feel like a little bit more, um, I don't know, a little bit more connected to them that you were able to, to be transparent about the challenges that you have so that they can see that exactly your message, you know, that adults have challenges too and here's how we overcome them. Um, must have been very empowering, not just for them, but for you too, right? Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of that. I must say that for all the challenges I've had in my life communicating, fatherhood was fascinating in the sense that I, I never had a difficulty with my children. Now, I, I'm not saying that I can suddenly magically read their body language. I just can't do that. It's not a small skill I have. Right. But in every other way, it was automatic and immediate. And, and that's essentially unique for me. Do you, do, you, do you look to them for help in some way? I mean, maybe not so openly, but is there a part of the shared communication with your kids that you now look for them to give you something back from it? Or is that really not part of the purpose? I, that's not really part of it. But I tell you what I do get from them is if I want to know the truth about something, Yona, that they're the people to ask. <laughs> oh, I love it. This is a great conversation, man. I don't know. I, I think you and I are communicating just 
brilliantly right now. I mean, I, I wish I had more guests like you. Um, you know, you've been open about, you know, your some of your challenges. Uh, I, I would think that there's probably a whole bunch of people out there, probably a whole bunch of adults that have, you know, that ha- don't read the same body language, that miss certain social cues. Um, you know, I see it, you know, often in teenagers that I work with in my practice. Um, you know, I, I just I just don't know that anybody realizes that it's just anything more than them them being a little quirky. Uh, when did you separate just being a little quirky from the fact that maybe you had something that's more formalized in terms of a challenge? So I guess I never thought about it through that paradigm. That I mentioned earlier that the diagnosis was almost an accident because I was really seeking help with my own body language. What yeah. I have found is overcoming the, the the various difficulties I've had. I'm doing this when in a career as a professor, the the one informed the other. So I guess when I give a lecture, especially at the beginning, there was preparation almost to the point of it being like acting. If you know what I mean? Yeah, I but do. But then that you. became more Absolutely. and more natural. And, and the really odd thing is that that became more and more natural. I felt more like myself when I was teaching than I did when I wasn't. It was like that. <laughs> there's an Irish, an Irish writer called, you know, Goldsmith, and he wrote something like, "On the stage, he was natural, simple, accepting. It was only that when he was off, he was acting." And that's how you I know, felt. It's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I hear that from a lot of actors and, and comedians and people, and myself too. When you know, I find that when I'm working, I'm much more natural dealing with my stuff than when I'm not, because I guess for me and maybe for you, it's a bit of a mask, you know, like kind of a, it's a uniform that we're wearing and, you know, we can kind of be ourselves without totally being ourselves. Am I misreading that or I don't want to put words in your mouth either. No, mask is a good word, but for me, what I found surprising and really helpful is the element of self that I developed lecturing and teaching bled into my Mm -hmm non-professional life in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So the, the version of myself I developed as a lecturer began to inform the, the sense of myself in my personal life and in my you know, non-professional life in general. That when you opened up to your kids and to adults in general about some of the challenges you have, did you find that they were more accepting and, and consequently made your, lives, your life a little bit easier? Or did they start treating you differently in a way that maybe you weren't so happy? Well, I, to be honest, before before that piece last Saturday, I told very, very few people. Um, and my children were just, you know, it, it was not an issue for them at all. So they, they, they were no more or less accepting of me. They're, they're great. There was no issue. I'm talking to uh, to Paul, uh, Professor Paul McNicholas. He is the Canada Research Chair in Computational Statistics at McMaster University. A uh, really good guy, obviously a great dad. Paul, uh, thank you so much for being on with us. You amazing, amazing guest, and uh, thank you for sharing. Very articulate, very open, and very clear in your words. And uh, lots of respect goes out to you, my friend. Uh, and thank you for being with us tonight and sharing. You know, we thought that we had heard enough when we talked about fentanyl and car fentanyl and 
some of the tainted drugs that we see out there on the street that are killing our friends and our neighbors and our you know communities uh, by the thousands. By the way, this is not a remote situation; it only happens once in a while. This is, we're, we're we're killing our, you know these drugs are killing our our communities um, by the thousands. And you know when you just think that you've sort of got a handle on what's going on, you know, I spent a lot of years as a street worker. Uh, which meant I did my my work, my my uh, my crisis work, and my therapy work in the street, so to speak, as it relates to people that uh, couldn't come in from the cold, were living in uh, in you know condemned buildings and so on. I spent a lot of years doing that, a lot of years, you know, finding people in back alleys of Tim Hortons and places like that to do what we could to try to help them. And of course, when the fentanyl surge came along, and then we were able to find things like naloxone, which initially was an injection. You had to inject somebody uh, with naloxone to bring them back from a, a fentanyl overdose, opioid overdose. Um, and then that became, you know, kind of challenging for people to inject other people. So it then became a nasal spray. You could stick it in somebody's nose and pump it a couple of times and bring them back to to, to life, so to speak. And, and that's exactly what naloxone would do. It would take somebody, bring somebody back from a not always, but more often than not, somebody back from a horrific overdose or potential uh, loss of life as a result of um, fentanyl, or carfentanyl, or you know, tainted opioids. Well, now we have something out there that is really, really um, disturbing, and in fact, it's not even illegal. I want you to listen just for a second here uh, to not a second, eighteen seconds actually. Uh, Dr. James Basante he talks to us about. Zylax, uh, Zylaxine, which is what it's called. And um, just have a listen to why the medical community is now so concerned. In the last two years, we have seen a dramatic increase in xylazine being found in not just heroin and fentanyl, but other drug supplies as well. Um, it's an animal sedative uh, that when mixed with opioids intensifies the opioid high and can extend it for longer periods of time. So what it is, is it's a, it's a booster for fentanyl and opioids. And in fact, it is um, kind of, this is kind of how it, how it goes. It, um, the, it, what it does is it, it's, it's a, it's a livestock sensitive. So it's an animal sensitive. It's not intended for humans. So dealers use it to bulk up their fentanyl to basically, you know, fill up their, their fentanyl to, to, to make it last longer. So you don't use as much fentanyl. Now, the reason that heroin was cut was fentanyl was, you know, heroin is more expensive than fentanyl. So fentanyl will extend the heroin high and, and, and so on until we realized, uh, till everyone realized how deadly and dangerous it is and was. Um, and now, we're dealing with uh, xylazine, which is, you know, a kind of a booster of the of the opioid. And what it does is it extends the hit, but knocks you out for so long that you actually sleep through your fentanyl high and you wake up desperate for more fentanyl. So having gained nothing from this newly applied appalling drug beyond several hours of unconsciousness, you can easily have obtained by smashing your head against the wall, according to what the doctors are saying. Heroin and meth users develop terrible facial sores. Uh, but if you've not seen what xylazine does to your skin, because most mainstream journalism won't show you the photos because they're so they're so gross, it digs graves in your skin. It, it eats away at the inner flesh and leaves a scaly material called eschar behind. It can lead to amputation, but addicts then inject 
the drug into their stumps. It becomes so addictive that you can't let go. And worse, beyond any imagination, is naloxone. Can't reverse opioids like fent that can reverse opioids like fentanyl, but they don't have no no bearing. They don't they don't affect the xylazine. They don't work with sedatives. So you're alone, let's say on the street, out in the cold, just kind of a limp person. You're open to being sexually assaulted, robbed, murdered, or worse. You know, it's a veterinary drug, right? So because it's a veterinary drug, no one ever dreamed humans would ever use it. So it's not illegal. Xylazine, which is causing so much harm and, and, and creating a, another level of a pain and suffering for those that are already suffering with addiction disease, who are already, you know, trying to get their head around how to use fentanyl on a daily basis to get the buzz that they need, the high that they need to get through the day. Now, now you have to be concerned that it's cut with xylazine, which basically takes the high away. I mean, it said, you know, the, the doctor was saying how it exasperates and extends the, the fentanyl high, but you're unconscious. So you're not even benefiting, if, if, if such a word is appropriate, you're not even benefiting from the fentanyl high because the xylazine just knocks you so far on your butt and knocks you out that you're not even, I guess, enjoying the benefits of the fentanyl high, if that's probably the right word to use. And, you know, the problem that we have here is that we can't get a handle on it. And, you know, unless you ask your, your dealer, hey, man, um, you know, does your stuff have xylazine in it? Most say no. And frankly, most people don't test for it. I'm not sure what the test even looks like. I know that it's not on any of the panels in any of the testing that I have available to my patients. And we have 12 and 14 panel tests, urine tests. Um, we have saliva-based tests, but none of them test for xylazine. You don't know if it's even present in the drug. You know, we have some swipes here. Um, I have in my office here, in my studio, that, you know, we would hand out to people on the street that were in crisis. Uh, I've, I've handed out thousands of them uh, to people uh, over the years so that they could test their drugs to see if fentanyl was present in the drug. So you cook it up a little bit, you test the drug. If fentanyl is present, it'll turn a certain color. But you can't test for xylazine. So as we get further and further into understanding this horrific drug, it becomes resistant to everything. Any common antibiotic um, that you can't, you know, it's, it's a, it becomes like a fun, you know, creates like a, almost like a fungus in your body, but it doesn't respond to antifungals. So, you know, you're, it's, you're, you're, you're kind of, there's nowhere to turn and you show up to hospital. And unless you're in some big city hospital for the most part, and, and they have some, you know, reasonable knowledge of what this drug is. I mean, nowadays, I guess, uh, you know, pretty much any hospital just dealing with overdose victims is, is hip to xylazine being out there, but so hard to find and so hard to, to, to detect in the drug itself. So it's very difficult. I mean, you can test your heroin or your cocaine or anything, any drug that's out there, you can test for fentanyl or, or the presence of other types of, of street cut or street drugs that, you know, could be harmful, but xylazine, which is clearly, clearly at a whole new level, right? It's, it's, it's just not even, it's just not even a, a not even a, a chance to pick it up. It's not something you go out to do. Like, you know, some people now do fentanyl or are, are using fentanyl as their first choice, primarily because there's no real heroin out there anyway. 
certainly not at the level that the people that I deal with her have available. But xylazine, right, is a whole new level now because it's available if you know a far, if you know a vet or you can get it over the internet much easier because it's not illegal to possess it. It's not illegal to have it in on you know in your in on on your on your body. I, I imagine, you know, it, it's illegal to find in a in a drug production facility where someone is cutting fentanyl into something else or trying to create you know a street drug that's uh, you know cost effective and makes the the dealers wealthy and at the same time gets the user to be as high as they possibly can be without just to the line where they almost kill them, but not really. Well, now xylazine takes that to a whole new level and it makes it almost impossible to treat. So this is really a public service announcement, my dear friends. I don't know how many of you out there have challenges in terms of drug issues and substance issues, but if you do, or you know someone that does, wake them up, let them know that xylazine is on the, on the street and this stuff is deadly. And it's deadly because it, it covers up the benefit or the, the high, not the benefit, the high from fentanyl. And when you wake up, all you want is more fentanyl because you've slept through the high. You didn't get the benefit. You didn't get the buzz that you were looking for or the numb that you were looking for. And when you wake up, you realize how deadly this stuff is. So xylazine is what we're looking for, my dear friends. Get the word out there. Let your friends know. Let your friends' kids know. Let everybody you can talk to know, like I'm trying to do here tonight. It's a dangerous drug, and it's killing people. And it's just adding to the mix and making it more difficult to save lives. Tonight, we're going to continue our discussion about how to make it a great day. You know, you're always walking around somewhere, you're in the store, and you've got a cordial person, a friendly person at the cash. And as you're leaving, he or she says, Okay, have a good day. Or you're on your way out the door, and your mom or your grandma or someone in your life, your kids, your wife, someone, husband, your partner, someone says, Okay, have a good day. And you're thinking to yourself, Maybe I should look in my lunch bag. Maybe they put something in there. My great day is in there. My good day is in there. Because have a good day. Like it's almost like they're giving it to you. It's like a gift, right? They're giving you a gift to have a good day. Doesn't work like that, my friend. Does not work like that. The way you have a good day is you make it a good day. And in this case, we're talking about making it a great day. So taking it to taking it to heart, understanding what it really takes to make it a great day. And this is the end of our four-week um, uh, series. So if you weren't around for it before, I'll give it to you real quick. Start the day with a positive attitude, number one. Make a plan for the day and priori prioritize your tasks, number two. Spend time with people you care about, number three. Take a break. Do something you enjoy throughout the day, number four. Get some exercise. Exercise is in everything Yona talks about, right? Make sure you eat properly, sleep properly, and get some exercise. That's just part of good mental and physical health for everyone. Make sure you eat healthy and stay hydrated. Very important. So those are the six key in ingredients to making it a great day that we've learned together so far. Didn't want you to be behind. So I'm giving you a chance here to catch up talking a little slower for you so you got time to write it all down but then here we go let's continue along the vein of making it a great day because it's not something that happens by accident it's something that we make happen it's something that we can affect 
we can make a difference in our lives by affecting the kind of day we have in terms of how we manage, prioritize, and organize our days and get into it and get wake up with the right attitude, carry the right attitude, and keep the right attitude alive such that you can actually walk away and say, I made it a great day. Now, things have to come into play as well, right? So good weather really helps a little bit, right? Maybe having something awesome to eat that day for me also helps make a great day, good interactions with others. But as things come ahead of you, things come in front of you, you you find yourself in situations. You can turn those into great situations, consequently having a great day, or perhaps not so much. And then we walk away going, oh, God, that guy really bummed me out and blah, blah, blah. Well, no, people don't bum us out unless we let them. People don't affect us unless we let them. So here's another thing to do to make yourself a great day. Take the time to reflect and appreciate your life. Some people call it gratitude. Make a gratitude list. Think about the things in your life that are make you that make you smile, that you can appreciate the things that you have, simple things like the ability to walk, if that's something you have, or the ability to speak, if that's something you have, or the ability to concentrate or, or to do things that you take for granted, but you need to appreciate them. Being able to use two hands and a mouth to eat your food, being able to see what's in front of you, being able to hear the noises around you and the sounds around you. These are the things that you can appreciate even when you say, Yona, I've got nothing going on in my life that I appreciate. And my answer is, that's a bunch of BS. We all have something we can appreciate. And even if it's the breath we have in the morning, because that's not a given. And if you jump in here real quick, 877-399-9898. If you want to share something about how you make a great day, you can text me to that line, 877-399-9898. And I'll be able to read those texts and maybe share it with the audience later on throughout the course of the evening. Number the next thing to be to be mindful of is that you have to be present and mindful of your emotions. Making sure that your your emotions are what I like to say your emotions are in check. What does they mean? What's it mean for them to be in check? It means you're not too high, not too low, you're kind of right in the middle, but you're in control of your emotions. Being present and mindful of how you feel and how things make you feel, how people make you feel, going into situations ahead of time, understanding that, hmm, this might be a little rough. This might be one of those situations, you know, that last time I was here, this happened and that happened. Okay, so I know that if I walk in and see this person, he's likely or she's likely or they're likely to say the following. It works real well when you start thinking about relationships, like family relationships, like your mom's house your grandmom's house, your ex-wife, your ex, you know, all the people in your life that you can predict your relationship dynamic with. When you can predict that, you know, my mom's likely to say something about my weight or my mom's likely to say something about, you know, uh, my hair, you know, my the length of my hair. My mom, may she rest in peace. You know, she used to constantly make comments about my length of hair. You know, I still at, my age have you know long hair and uh fortunate and fortunate to have a full head of hair but she'd always make a comment of oh don't you think you need a haircut so i knew going into conversations with my mom many times that it wasn't going to start out right so i had to make sure that i was mindful of how i was going to react and that i was going to be mindful to make sure 
that I had boundaries around the things that could hurt me or upset me. Wow. What did I just say? Yeah, listen to me carefully, okay? I know you're paying attention. I can see you out there. So listen to what I'm saying. You can control the impact that people have on you when you set yourself up properly. When you know someone's going to say something that's potentially going to be upsetting, you anticipate that and give yourself a boundary around, you know what, man? I love being here with you right now, but this conversation is not going the way I want it to. Let's catch each other later, okay? Speak to you soon. With a loved one, it would be something like, you know what? I love you, mom, but this conversation isn't what I need right now. It's not really helping me. So why don't we have this conversation later? I'll call you later on tonight. Boundaries, choices. You get to make them. You get to put them up. You get to decide who gets to impact you and who doesn't. You get to decide how much impact people can have on your life, on your day, on your in, on, in that moment, at that time. So frankly, to make it a great day, you need to be somewhat resilient. You need to be somewhat uh, expectant of the things, the pitfalls, the, the, the streets. You know, there's certain streets I drive my car down and I know where the, where the potholes are. I just don't drive that fast. And I just make sure that when I get to near the potholes, I go through them slowly. I try to avoid them. I try to walk, move around them or take another street. You can choose to do that too. Another way to make it a great day is to reach out to friends and families family family that you know are supportive and healthy and make you feel good about yourself. And last but not least, the way to make a great day is to end your day always with something that brings you joy. For me, it's coming home to my loved ones. For you, it might be something else. But whatever brings you joy is the way you should end your day. And frankly, you should remember that when you wake up the next day. So you start your day with joy, you end your day with joy, and you end up with what we call a great day. You know, it's not a mag it's not magic. It's not something that just happens if you're lucky. These things happen when you work at it. And we work at making things great or not. So if you decide that you don't have the energy to make today a great day, then that's okay. Settle for good or okay. But anything that's just not traumatic and knock you off your block, so to speak, that's what I call a good day. And great days are days when you walk away feeling empowered, excited, in, you know, enlightened and loved and cared for. For me, that's a great day. I don't know what it means to you, but for me, that's a great day. When all the pieces come together, I make it happen. I don't wait for it to happen. And I'm hoping that you're going to do the same as well. Okay, so you're over at your buddy's house. You decide that, uh, you know, after dinner, you're all sitting around. Maybe you want to feel like smoking a little weed. You hit you hit a joint a couple, two, three times as you're passing it around. No big deal, right? I mean, you've smoked that joint a million times, I'm sure, in your life at this point. Maybe have a beer with that after your pizza or after dinner, during dinner. Not a big deal. And then you get in the car and drive away and thinking, I got this. I'm under control. I got this. Well, let me tell you something. There's this kid, this guy, Kevin Hyde, not a kid. He's a grown adult. He got in the car higher than a kite on cannabis and killed someone and uh, caused this 51-year-old uh, wife and mother of two um, while he was impaired. And he stood before the court and said he completely feels uh, terrible about it. He apologies. I I'm sorry I caused this tragedy. I wish it was me that died that day instead of the victim. Uh, he ended up with a, um, a six and a half year prison sentence, 10 year driving pro pro probation, 
after finding him guilty of impaired driving by cannabis causing death and dangerous driving causing death last November after a very lengthy trial. And they noted this, uh, well, this guy's 60, he was 60, he is, is 60 years old at the time, uh, showed a lot of remorse, but never really accepted criminal responsibility for the deadly crash that uh, that took this uh, woman's uh, life. Um, listen to this clip. This is uh, Global, uh, our colleague at Global um, uh, News and uh, Catherine McDonald. She breaks down what police found in this guy's car um, after the incident. Another officer telling the judge she seized cans of beer, some that were open and empty, and a tin can with a baggie in it which contained cannabis from Hyde's trunk. She also said she smelled a faint odor of burnt cannabis in the car. Earlier at the trial, the arresting officer testified he detected an odor of alcohol on Hyde's breath and said the 58-year-old told him he had consumed a couple of beers before lunch. My uh, guest this evening is Kyla Lee. She is a uh, traffic lawyer and uh, works at a firm called Acumen Law, I believe in BC. Is that correct, Kyla? That is. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thank you. I just want to make sure I got people with the right designation. So uh, Kyla Lee, traffic lawyer, BC, Acumen Law, here my guest this evening. And I got to tell you, man, I've been doing this. I've been an addiction counselor and a therapist, a crisis guy for a whole long time. And uh, decades and decades and decades. And I still shake my head and wonder, here we are, 2023, and people are still that stupid that they think they can drive or get high and get behind a car when they're drunk or have had a few beers. And, you know, then we see situations like this and people go, well, oops, you know, maybe the guy just couldn't handle his weed. That's not it at all, is it? That's not it. In fact, uh, with cannabis, usually people are more cognizant of their level of impairment than with alcohol or other drugs that kind of make you feel more powerful than you are and feel like you're masking the symptoms. So generally speaking, the science would say that somebody like this who was impaired by cannabis, who got behind the wheel of the vehicle, knew full well what they were doing when they got in the car and decided to take that risk anyway. What do you say, uh, Kyla? What do you say when people say, I mean, people tell me all the time, yo, now listen, man, <clears throat> I drive much better when I'm a little bit high. Like not, I'm not blasted. Like I'm not really out of my, out of control, but I just, I think I concentrate better when I have a bit of a buzz on. What's the answer to that? Um, well, when it comes to cannabis, the science would say maybe, depending on the person, um, that might be true. But the law says that that is not the case. And the law in Canada is that um, if you're impaired, even to the slightest degree, and impairment is deviation from your norm. So if you are even slightly off from what your norm is, then that is against the law. So it doesn't matter if you think that you drive better. It doesn't matter if, you know, science says that people who are very tolerant to cannabis may actually perform better um, because of their tolerance to cannabis and their dependency on it. The law says you cannot be using cannabis to that point and then getting behind the wheel of a car. I have a lot of uh, people that I work with over the years that uh, now we, we provide all of our patients that have substance use disorder with, uh, if it's alcohol, with a, with a small breathalyzer they can carry in their pocket. Hard to test for weed, though, isn't it? Or for hash or whatever else, or ever other cannabis products. Uh, edibles, I think, are, are probably the most, uh, the, 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 probably the, the most dangerous, right? Because you eat an edible, you don't you feel like you're fine, and then halfway down the freeway, suddenly you get high like Jack the Bear, and you're out of control. Is you hear these kind of stories as you're defending people uh, for these kinds of, of of charges? Yes, 
we do hear these stories. Um, they typically come from people who are sort of naive to the effects of cannabis, so who don't really know that when you take an edible, you need to wait half an hour. And if you don't feel anything, wait another hour uh, before you know that, yeah. you know, you're absolutely okay and that it's not affecting you. Um, and so we see this a lot with, you know, new users or, or naive users who um, end up in those situations and then end up facing driving prohibitions or criminal charges or at worst accidents um, as a result of uh, the edible kicking in while they're driving. And it's true, we don't have a lot of ways to test ourselves for impairment by a drug. I know some people have developed some apps that test your sort of reaction time and your coordination, your response time, um, but there's no sort of perfect determiner of whether or not you're impaired like a breathalyzer would be for cannabis. Yeah, it's interesting because people tell me, you know what, Yona, I took I took a gummy, nothing happened, I didn't feel anything, I figured it's not working, so I took another one and then realized, you know, 45 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half later that I'm really, really high. Um, you know, if you're caught driving under the influence, uh, in this particular case, it was cannabis, but maybe not just cannabis, right? Because according to the clip, there were there were open cans of, of alcohol as well. The combination clearly of alcohol and weed together isn't a good thing, but when you're when you're caught driving under the influence, does it always result in some jail time like this guy got the six and a half years or two years or tell me that? No. So most of the time, as long as you're not involved in a collision that leads to injury or death, um, for a first offense, you're going to face a sentence usually of a fine and driving prohibition and a criminal record. Um, when it comes to cases involving accidents where there are injuries, um, you would expect to see a jail sentence. And usually that jail sentence is anywhere between three months and two years, depending on the nature of the injuries, the nature of the driving, the level of impairment and other factors. And we are seeing an upward trend in sentencing in Canada for impaired driving causing death. It used to be that you would get a two-year sentence for killing somebody while you were impaired behind the wheel. But now we're seeing, like in this case, six and a half years, ten years, um, lengthy sentences for these offenses, which I think is reflecting sort of a, a growing trend in society towards great condemnation of these offenses. Yeah, and it, it, it ranges, doesn't it, from province to province? It does range from province to province. Um, you know, there are provinces that are considered perhaps more lenient. Uh, BC is, is probably uh, guilty of that moniker. Um, whereas um, in Ontario and, and out east, the sentences are a lot uh, more strict. Um, in Alberta, they're quite strict. Um, up north, again, quite strict. And often it has to do with um, cultural factors, um, like a culture of drinking and driving, particularly in local communities. You see this in, in especially remote northern communities where there's not much to do and no public transportation. There's developed a culture of drinking and driving, and so stricter sentences are imposed to try and deter people from engaging in that. We're talking about a, a man who got six and a half year sentence for uh, killing somebody while impaired by cannabis. Um, in fact, he um, he wrote the, the story goes like this: that um, a speech pathologist, um, her name is uh, Louise Witten, was Louise Witten, fifty um, one year old uh, wife and mother of two. Uh, he was uh, impaired with by drugs, uh, with drugs, and we believe alcohol as well, based on the story. She's walking down the street with her puppy on a pedestrian path next to Lakeshore Boulevard in Oakville, Ontario, here not far from Toronto, when his speeding Nissan Sentra left the roadway and hit her and the dog. Both were killed instantly. And the judge found that he was traveling at 90 kilometers an hour in a 50 zone just five seconds prior to the collision and then took his foot off only for a second when he hit her. And then he goes on to 
suggests that um, his his uh, his 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 defense was that he had an episode of something called syncope, which he argued caused him to momentarily lose consciousness and um, you know react in a way that caused the death. My guest this evening is Kylie Lee. She's a traffic lawyer with Acumen Law in British Columbia. Kylie, uh, Kyla, thank you for being back here with us. Thank you for being part of the show. Uh, people still act like cannabis isn't a thing, like isn't a problem. Um, I, I, I don't quite get that. Um, they, they think that, you know, it's just weed. How many people say, well, you know, it's just weed. It's not a big deal. It's not like I'm having a couple of drinks. Uh, over the last couple of years, two, three years, um, you know, impairment by cannabis is becoming a bigger deal. Uh, what do you see in your practice uh, on a weekly, monthly basis? I mean, I don't see a lot of cases of impairment by cannabis alone. Um, it's often cannabis in combination with something else, whether it's in combination with another drug, whether it's in combination with alcohol, which is pretty common, or in combination, like in this case, with alcohol and very bad driving. Um, you know, the, the story that um, you cited uh, indicates that he was going 45 kilometers an hour over the speed limit and not paying attention to hazards on the road. And so it's when you start mixing those things that you get these devastating consequences. And that messaging really isn't out there. You know, we talk about, you know, cannabis and driving is bad, alcohol and driving is bad, but we don't talk as much as we should be about the effects of mixing a little of each and then the consequences that can flow as a result. Yeah, and what is like? What are you seeing in the courtroom, or what are you what are you experiencing in the courtroom in terms of uh, judges? Um, you know, are they are they starting to get a better understanding of the fact that you know I just smoked a little bit of weed, Your Honor? That's not really a, a defense anymore because each person could be impaired in different ways. Yes, um, we are seeing, you know, that that sort of line. I, I wasn't impaired. I just had a little bit um, not being accepted by judges. There have been quite a few cases now where people have been convicted um, where their defense essentially was, yes, I had some cannabis, but I didn't have enough to make me impaired. Um, and oftentimes there's evidence that flows in these cases from the traffic stops or from the accidents of um, people's manner of driving, people uh, walking and talking in the way that they're behaving that's not consistent with a normal person um, that shows that it's not just a little bit that doesn't affect them. It is something that is affecting them and they're either disregarding that or downplaying it. In the case of this guy, Hyde, this uh, Oakville guy uh, from Ontario here, he received a six and a half year sentence. And you said to me, uh, we were talking a little earlier and you were, you so nicely shared that, you know, up until fairly recently, you got a couple of years if you killed somebody in a car, but you might get 10 years if you shoot somebody. I just added that. Uh, so somehow, I guess a car became less of a weapon. I, I believe it's very much weaponized when someone is impaired and behind the wheel. But is this six and a half year sentence you think it's excessive or is this now becoming more of the standard well i would think it would be excessive in the case of perhaps a first-time offender uh where there wasn't um you know a pattern of bad driving in the past but this individual had a driving record that spanned from 1988 to 2016 with over 16 entries for related driving behavior, including a lot of entries for speeding, which was one of the things that caused the collision in this case. So when you have somebody who demonstrates a consistent pattern of disregard for the law, when they're being sentenced, the law has to respond to that and has to punish them harshly because the message obviously wasn't getting sent home with every single speeding ticket that this person got. 
Yeah, you'd think that's that many interactions. Uh, you'd kind of wake up and realize that uh, that uh, you're just not a very good driver, right? Uh, but aside from jail time, uh, which is a big deal. I mean, six and a half years, and then you know he'll get time served, so maybe he'll do four, three and a half, four, right? Depends. I'm in Ontario for sure. It goes that way. You don't do all the time for sure. Um, but aside from jail time, um, most of my patients that end up with DUIs, their biggest concern is not being able to drive. Is that a? Mm -hmm. You think, in your opinion, based on your professional experience, that the uh, the ten year ban, fifteen year ban, lifetime ban. Is that more of a deterrent, you think, for people than the jail time potentially or the fine itself? Oh, absolutely. I've had clients tell me, you know, look me straight in the eye and say, I'd rather go to jail than lose my driver's license. Um, because for a lot of people, you know, your driver's license is your livelihood. Your driver's license is how you get around uh, with your family. Your driver's license is your sense of personal freedom. Um, and the 10-year driving ban is a long driving prohibition. And one thing that a lot of people don't know is that these driving bans in cases where there's a jail sentence imposed are usually the court orders that the driving ban doesn't commence until the person is released from custody. So it's 10 years no driving on top of the period he's already in jail. Uh, so in this case, let's say he was to do the whole time, which he won't, but it'd be like a 16-year ban, right? It would be, yes. Yeah, Um Amazing. So in your professional opinion, I mean, I, I guess you do this every day, right? This is what you do for a living? This is what I do every day, yes. Uh, do, you, do you walk out of court sometimes, like I think I do when I read the articles and listen to my colleagues on various media you know, uh, networks talking about these kinds of stories? Do you walk out sort of giving your head a shake, wondering, like, when are people going to get it? Um, I do and I don't. I mean, you know, my, my job as a lawyer is not to um, sort of see that my client is punished, um, but instead to make sure that I'm defending somebody, making sure that their rights were respected and, um, you know, ensuring that they get a fair trial, that they get a fair sentence, that they, that they are treated fairly by the justice system. So you know, if I've done my job correctly, I'm walking out of court thinking what happened in court was fair. Okay. Um, okay. Do you think, I, although I'm sure you don't want to be driving anywhere near that person that you just got out on uh, off the charge, I'm sure you want to make sure you let them leave the, the parking lot first. You think our laws are too lenient when it comes to DUIs, alcohol, weed, I whatever? You know, I, I don't. I actually, I, I have a lot of problems with the way that our laws are crafted. I think that they are um, too strict. And a lot of people will be surprised to hear me say that um, because the impaired driving obviously is a big problem. But the way that we've written the law in Canada it was really strengthened in 2018 has eliminated a lot of the mechanisms that people could use to challenge some of the scientific validity behind the ways that we're looking for impairment. And they don't always make sense when it comes to how people are affected by certain substances, the way that tolerance plays a role, and even the way that breath testing machines and cannabis testing methods, the physical coordination tests can get things wrong. And so I would like to see more opportunity to fully explore the science of it rather than what we have now, which is an outright ban on doing that. 
I'm talking to Kyla Lee. Thank you for being with us this evening, Kyla. Uh, she's with Acumen Law. She's a uh, a traffic uh, lawyer. She specializes in uh, impaired and other traffic-related issues. Uh, someone you should reach out to if you're in the BC area. God forbid you find yourself in that position. Uh, this uh, person is clearly uh, at their best in terms of doing their job, and I highly recommend them uh, to support uh, your case. 